0: This podcast is once again presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. We're so excited to have them back. Journey through Virginia's rich history and discover hidden treasures. You can learn more at virginiahistory.org. Hello, everyone.
1: Welcome to season three. Oh my gosh, I cannot believe I just said that. Season three of the How We Got Here podcast, we are just floored by your support and continued interest. I'm your host, Rachel DePompa. My day job is an investigative reporter with the NBC affiliate WWBT in Richmond, Virginia. And when I find the time, I dabble in podcasts with my friends, executive producer Colton Weekly and digital director Kate Albright. When we started this, Kate, Colton, and I had no idea we'd be doing this a year later. It's truly incredible. Okay, so here's how this works. If you're just joining us, there are two other seasons you can go binge right now. Season three drops every Monday. Each new episode has several stories for you from that week in history. And we have some good ones for you in episode one, so let's get going. This week, we are turning back the clock on the week of April 20th through the 26th. Notorious is a word that gets your attention. It's not used often, and it's pretty fitting for the protagonist in our next moment in time. John Wilkes Booth. That name takes you back to elementary school, doesn't it?
0: certainly be notorious he was the subject of what most historians of that period refer to as the largest manhunt in american history
1: a manhunt that ended april 26 1865 when booth the assassin of president abraham lincoln was surrounded and killed in a barn near port royal virginia that's about 70 miles south
0: of dc it was a very dangerous time in the country because like most events of that type where the head of state is is killed or there's a major tragedy, you know, people get nervous. People who even looked like John Wilkes Booth were being stopped and questioned. By some accounts, 200 people were murdered over the course of the ensuing days after the assassination because they were thought to have some association. And this is happening like all over the country. It's not isolated to Washington, DC. Booth was on
1: the run for 12 days before Union soldiers tracked him to that Virginia barn. He was just weeks shy of his 27th birthday.
0: One of the reasons that John Wilkes Booth and this story are remembered is because the story in and of itself has a level of drama that you couldn't write.
1: Andrew Taukoff would know.
0: I'm the senior director of curatorial affairs at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. I've worked here now for 12 years.
1: Even though he grew up in Massachusetts, just north of Boston, Talcoff's always had a fascination with Southern history. It drew him to Richmond.
0: In Massachusetts, the Civil War is largely history. But in Virginia, the Civil War lives as a part of our everyday conversations.
1: I asked Talcoff if he's been here long enough to be considered a Virginian.
0: I'm not sure. I think it depends on the Virginian you ask. (laughs) True, (laughs) fair.
1: And before we take a fascinating deep dive into the largest manhunt in American history, we have to set the scene. You have to know a little more about John Wilkes Booth.
0: What makes the entire story so spectacular is that Booth was one of the most recognized actors in the country. He came from a very established and well-known acting family.
1: His father was named Junius Brutus Booth. If you're going Caesar right there, you'd be right. He was one of the best Shakespearean actors in the country. His brother Edwin, also an actor. Everyone knew the Booths, which makes what happens so outrageous.
0: In some ways, it would be like one of the Baldwins assassinating the president. You know, like they come from an acting family. They're all very well known. They're known nationally.
1: And like the Baldwin brothers, some are more talented than others. Dang, Daniel. (laughs) I speak the truth, come on. Daniel, Steven, Alec, Billy. It's Daniel.
0: By all accounts, John Wilkes Booth was in some ways not as good of an actor as his brother and father were. But Booth had a flair for the dramatic. He had an incredible imagination. He had picked up stage fighting skills that made the performances that he was in very exciting to audiences.
1: Booth gets his big acting break in Richmond in 1859. So his career sort of starts here. And he traveled the South, and he came to love the South, and Southern audiences, they loved him.
0: And I think that began his strong affiliation with the South and the Confederate cause.
1: But after the war started, he came to resent touring in the North. He thought it made him a traitor.
0: At one point, he says, it's humiliating to play at war when a couple of hours from Washington, our warriors are dying said, I'm tired of it. I'm not in the mood. (laughs) He said, what are actors? They know little, think less, and understand next to nothing.
1: Booth wanted to make an impact.
0: He was of the theater, and he was dramatic. And in his mind, he would become the American Brutus who killed the tyrannical Caesar.
1: Did I also mention he seems super narcissistic and delusional? By late 1864, he becomes genuinely disinterested in his acting career. He joins the Confederate underground in Southern Maryland and decides he wants to strike a blow for the Confederacy. So he starts making plans with a small group of co-conspirators to kidnap the president, hold him ransom in Richmond, so the South would be able to negotiate for the release of Confederate prisoners and maybe even end the war. And then, everything changed for Booth. It was April 1865. Richmond Falls, the capital of the Confederacy, is no more. Its president, Jefferson Davis, is on the run. And then, Robert E. Lee surrenders the Army of Northern Virginia at Appomattox.
0: Washington becomes incredibly celebratory. There are parades, there's an illumination, People really see this as the end of the war, and there's a sense of relaxation in many ways in Washington. Booth then realizes that capturing Lincoln was gonna be fruitless, and so he begins to hatch a plan where he would kill the president.
1: And on the morning of April 14th, as fate would have it, Booth goes to get his mail at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C and learns the president will come to a play that evening. It's a play Booth knew well, called American Cousin, and there's a line in the play he's waiting to hear before pulling the trigger.
0: So he came into the theater at nine o'clock by way of the alley behind the theater, entered through the rear door, talked to the doorman, I think figured out where they were in the play.
1: He went down the block to a saloon and had a drink.
0: Maybe he was, you know, trying to steal his courage, but clearly he was timing this. He comes back to the theater and was waiting for this laugh line, which is, don't know the manners of good society, eh? Well, I guess I know enough to turn you inside out, gal, you sock-dollaging old man-trap. The audience goes crazy. And it's at that time that by Booth's account, he yelled, six semper tyrannis, and shot Lincoln in the back of the head.
1: There's a couple in the box with the Lincolns, Major Henry Rathbone and his fiance Clara Harris.
0: Rathbone tries to stop Booth, who has fired the one shot out of his pistol, but is still armed with a knife. And he cuts Rathbone from shoulder to elbow and then tries to leap from the box onto the stage. But he gets his spur caught on one of the flags that's draped from the box. Booth falls hard onto the stage and breaks his leg. Stands up in front of the theater and then, by some accounts, yells Six Semper Tyrannis, or maybe he yelled The South is Avenged. So there are a number of accounts. And then he races out of the theater onto a horse in the back alley and tries to get to the Navy Yard Bridge and out of the Capitol.
1: His co conspirator, David Harold, is waiting for him. Harold is a 22 year old pharmacy clerk, and he's often described in history as dull witted. We'll just leave that there. But he knows the escape route, the plan get to Virginia. They ride to Surratt's Tavern in Maryland, about 12 miles outside the capital.
0: So Surratt's Tavern is owned by Mary Surratt. She was very much a Confederate sympathizer.
1: At the tavern, they get supplies, a pair of binoculars, two rifles, and a bottle of whiskey. From the tavern, they ride 17 miles through swamps and heavy woods. It takes them four hours, but they make it to Dr. Samuel Mudd's house. Remember, Booth has a badly broken leg. Total rabbit hole here, but I'm originally from Southern Maryland, and I grew up near Dr. Mudd's house. We visited it in school all the time. I even went to Dr. Mudd Elementary School for a year. There were kids in my classes named Mudd and Surratt. Totally invested in this tale. Okay. This is less than 24 hours from the shooting. It's early in the morning on April 15th. Lincoln is actually still alive at this point.
0: He dies at 7.22 a.m. on April 15th.
1: Booth and Harold knew Dr. Mudd. He was also a Southern sympathizer.
0: Because Booth's plan changed so quickly, I don't think Mudd understood that Booth had killed the president. In fact, we know that he probably didn't, unless there was some conversation between them that's that's unrecorded.
1: While Mudd sets his leg, the news of the assassination is starting to spread. Secretary of War Edwin Stanton
0: takes charge. And Stanton starts saying, "All right. Now we have to start collecting evidence. We have to start interviewing people, right? Taking depositions. We have to, you know, shut down the exits to the city, which of course they were too late.
1: The manhunt is underway."
0: It's clear that news is traveling because Mudd goes into town and there's a lot of news about the assassination. And so Mudd, who had a wife and children in the house, says, you've got to go.
1: As you'll see, Booth and Harold don't exactly have the best sense of direction. They ride on horseback and promptly get lost in Zekia Swamp. They come across a man named Oswald Swan, who guides them through Southern Maryland to a place called Rich Hill. It's around midnight, and they are now at the home of Samuel Cox.
0: A large Charles County, Maryland landowner, and he is also a staunch Confederate.
1: It's the second full day of the search for the famed actor, and Samuel Cox won't let Booth stay in his house. He directs them to a piece of land next to his called the pine thickets.
0: Imagine an incredibly dense pine forest, where you could really only see 30 or 40 yards in any direction. So this is a good place for them to hide out. Soldiers are now
1: everywhere looking for the killer. So Booth and Harold hide in the thickets for five days. Cox has a relative bring them food and drinks. But all Booth cares about is what the newspapers are saying.
0: Booth wants to be the hero of this story, and he thinks that he's he's a hero for killing Lincoln.
1: It's soon very clear he's being painted a villain. He's demoralized and starts writing in a small pocket notebook.
0: He says, I struck boldly and not as the papers say. Said I walked with a firm step through a thousand of his friends, was stopped but pushed on. A colonel was at his side. I shouted six semper before I fired. In jumping broke my leg. I passed all his pickets, rode 60 miles that night with a bone of my leg tearing the flesh at every jump. I can never repent it. Though we hated to kill, our country owed all her troubles to him and God simply made me the instrument of his punishment.
1: Still delusional, still narcissistic, and in an incredible amount of pain. On April 20th, 1865, at dusk, Booth and Harold attempt to cross the Potomac in a $19 skiff with a compass and a candle.
0: Unfortunately, neither of these people had a particularly good sense of direction, and they end up rowing north and west, and they end up back in Maryland.
1: Day seven of the manhunt, April 21st, they walk to a place called Indiantown, find more sympathizers who give them food, and as they hide along the shore of the Nanjamoy Creek, detectives are closing in. They've interviewed Mary Surratt of Surratt's Tavern. They raid Booth's hotel and find letters to other co-conspirators. There's now a $100,000 bounty on Booth's head. On April 22nd, they again try to cross the Potomac. This time, they make it. Well, almost. They land in the wrong place.
0: They come ashore essentially where the modern day Governor Harry W. Nice Memorial Bridge is on Route 301.
1: That is what I call a white knuckle bridge, because you have a death grip on the steering wheel as you cross it. Anyway, the bridge wasn't there in 1865. Booth and Harold make it to several homes of Confederate sympathizers, getting food and new horses. But no one wants them to stay for long. It's April 24, 1865, and the group that will ultimately
0: catch up to Booth is hot on his trail. 25 men of the 16th New York Cavalry and two detectives, Luther Baker and Everton Conger. Someone had been seen crossing the Potomac that turned out not to be Booth and Harold, but it started putting them on the alert about where someone may have crossed. This piece of mistaken identity actually put them closer on the trail.
1: The assassin and his accomplice are given a wagon ride to the north side of the Rappahannock River, and are ferried over to Port Royal, where they eventually end up at the Garrett farmhouse.
0: And introduced to the Garrett family as former Confederate soldiers who are returning from the war
1: the Garretts have no idea who they are really harboring. It's April 25th, 1865, and Booth is getting comfortable.
0: He eats breakfast, he plays with the Garrett children. I mean, I think in many ways he thinks that now that he's in Virginia, he's safe. But the Garretts are pretty suspicious and they keep pushing Booth about the story of being a Confederate veteran.
1: Harold wants to leave, but Booth says, let's stay.
0: Which is the most fateful decision. I mean, had they continued on, you know, who knows how long it would have taken to capture him or if they would have captured
2: him.
1: The cavalry, those 25 soldiers and two detectives, are getting closer. The Garrett family no longer wants Booth and Harold in their home. They ask them to sleep in a tobacco barn.
0: When the soldiers show up at two o'clock in the morning, Booth and Harold can hear the dogs barking, they can hear the horses, and the barn is very quickly surrounded by the cavalrymen.
1: They start negotiating, yelling back and forth. Harold loses his nerve. He walks out of the barn and is quickly taken prisoner by the Union troops. Booth has other ideas.
0: Booth at one point tells the Union soldiers to back off a hundred feet and they'll have a standoff, a shooting standoff. But the detectives want Booth alive.
1: Their plan, smoke him out. They set fire to the barn.
0: Booth is trapped. It's impossible to really know what was in his mind at the time. Witnesses say Booth dropped the
1: rifle he'd been carrying. He's still holding a pistol.
0: It seems like he's going to go out shooting.
1: As he makes his way to the barn door, a single shot rings out. Booth collapses.
0: The barn doors are swung open. They drag Booth's body out, you know, by his feet basically. And a union sergeant named Boston Corbett claims that he saw Booth rushing the door and shot him. Corbett would later say, God told him to do it. Booth is shot in the back of the neck, shot through the spine. He's, by all accounts, essentially paralyzed. Very quietly, to one of the detectives, he says, tell mother I die for my country.
1: Five hours later, at 7 in the morning, he asks them to raise his hands in front of his eyes.
0: And he looks at his hands and he says, useless useless.
1: John Wilkes Booth, the first presidential assassin, dies April 26, 1865, in Port Royal, Virginia. Hoping to strike a blow to the north, instead, Booth burns out, lighting Lincoln into legend.
0: This podcast is sponsored by the Library of Virginia, where collections of more than 129 million items tell the stories of Virginians to nearly four million people yearly. Find Virginia history at lva.virginia.gov.
3: Lasting. Her legacy has just been lasting. She was not just a singer. Ella Fitzgerald was another member of the band.
1: Ella Fitzgerald wasn't just another member of the band. The first lady of song was a Virginian. On April 25th, 1917, Ella Jane Fitzgerald, was born in Newport News.
3: We're so proud of her, just so absolutely proud of a woman who came from such humble beginnings and right here in Virginia and became an icon for jazz.
1: Who better to talk to for this story than a Richmond woman with decades of knowledge and experience in Fitzgerald's field?
3: I'm B.J. Brown. I am the executive director of Richmond Jazz Society. I am happy to say that we're celebrating our 40th anniversary. When we first got started, I had no silver hair. (laughs) We formed a group back in 1979. About nine or ten of us decided, yeah, well, we want to see it through. Not just uh, meet in folks' homes and, and drink wine and, and play jazz, um, and, which there's nothing wrong with that. But um, we, we wanted something more permanent.
1: Music isn't just part of Brown's life.
3: It's basically part of her family tree. I'm a Richmonder. I'm a Westender from the West End, from the Bird Park area. My parents um, loved music and they were fabulous dancers. My godmother also lived uh, a door down from me and she loved jazz. I'd have to stay with her sometimes when my parents were working and she'd let me play all her jazz albums. And my dad was a fabulous singer. He, his, he had a great voice like Brooke Benton. I didn't inherit that, but that doesn't stop me from singing, but you know.
1: Doesn't stop me either, BJ. Doesn't stop me either. Thank goodness there's no recording device in my car. You don't want to hear me sing.
3: (laughs) So I had music all around, all my life, from dance music to gospel. My grandfather lives with me, so even um, country western, you know. So I've had music in my life forever.
1: And Ella Fitzgerald was part of Brown's life from a very early
3: age. A lot of us would just huddle around the television. I had black and white TV <laughs> You know? And she was elegant. She was always had these gorgeous gowns and bouffant wigs and in front of a big band, or even if it was, whether it was a big band she was in front of, or even if it was just a, a quartet. She was always just Immaculate, just elegant, exquisite. You could tell she could dance because she was swinging. she would swing it, you know. And I watched my parents, they would dance to her and they would make up their own steps and like, oh man, I can't wait to hang out with my parents. Like, what was I thinking? You know, so but those are good memories I had as a kid, how I'm watching how my parents and that generation loved Ella Fitzgerald.
1: So let's start from the beginning, in April, 1917, when Ella Fitzgerald was born in Newport News. Shortly after her birth, her parents split up, and Fitzgerald and her mom moved to Yonkers, New York. Not much is known about her early years until about 1932. That's when both her mother and stepfather died, and Ella was sent to live with an aunt. Unable to adjust to her new life, her grades dropped. She started skipping school, and she got in trouble with the law. She was sent to reform school where she was beaten by caretakers. She would escape, but 15-year-old Ella Fitzgerald found herself alone and broke during the Great Depression.
3: She did what she had to do to survive. I've seen interviews of her where she talks about those early years, and yeah, they were tough but they gave her the experience to be able to sing from the heart because she had experienced a lot of those things and she had survived. It all
1: began to turn around for the young Fitzgerald in 1934.
3: The Apollo Theater had a talent show and she, she was a dancer. She used to teach the kids in the neighborhood the newest dance steps. In the talent competition, she was gonna dance. Before she goes on, there's a group that I think they had matching outfits and, you know, they were well rehearsed. and So she's standing in the wings and she's seeing these people dance. And like, I can't I can't go up behind them and dance, you know. And she wasn't really that well dressed. She got on on stage and she froze. Audience died booing. The Apollo's tough, tough audience still is. And so they started booing, and she's called, "Oh, what am I gonna do? She decided to sing. Where her
1: feet had betrayed her on the stage, her voice was a whole different story.
3: She sang the song, it was a popular song that everybody would know, had heard on the radio, and floored the audience. And they they clapped so long, they asked her to sing another song. Well, she did. Needless to say, she won the competition.
1: She got the attention of a saxophone player in the band that night a man named Benny Carter. Carter immediately recognized Fitzgerald's talent and introduced her to musicians around New York. It was around that time she met drummer and band leader Chick Webb. He gave her the opportunity to audition for his band when they played at Yale University. She was as good as advertised and Chick hired her to travel with the band where she would be paid $12.50 a week. Then, in 1938, another big break for the now 21-year-old Ella.
3: And during that time, she recorded A Tisket, A Tasket, which sold a million copies. Amazing, during that time for, for any musician, for any, you know, much less a, a vocalist such as she from such humble backgrounds. And, and then her, her career really took off after that. She sang for audiences throughout the world. And to sell out audiences, she sang with, or should I say, they play with her. Uh, Fry Sinatra, uh, Duke Ellington, Cal Basie, Quincy Jones. Her
1: unique vocal qualities set her apart from anyone the world had ever heard before.
3: One of her ability to sing as an instrumentalist. She could scat, she could vocalize, she could sound like a saxophone, she could sound like a trumpet, a trombone, a bass, drums. She could be any instrument she wanted to be. And then she had that beautiful childlike quality, crystal clear quality to her voice.
1: And her talent did not fade over
3: time. Her career spanned six decades. I was able to see her a couple of times, maybe three times, that I can remember in concert. I don't care however many years apart that I'd see her, her voice stayed the same. At the Hampton Jazz Festival, I think that was the last time I saw her. They brought her out in a wheelchair, you know, and people are crying. It was tough. She gets up to the mic and does her signature, woo-wee, you know, to the top of the ceiling. The crowd roared, everybody stood up clapping, and from that point on, it was just, you close your eyes, it was the same Ella that you always knew.
1: Throughout her storied career, she made history as a woman of color, paving the way for those following the dream that she made a reality.
3: Do you know who the first African-American woman to win a Grammy Award was? Ella Fitzgerald. She sold 40 million albums, won over a dozen Grammy Awards.
1: President Reagan even awarded Ella the National Medal of Arts. But age began to take its toll. In 1986, she underwent quintuple coronary bypass surgery. Doctors replaced a valve in her heart and diagnosed her with diabetes. But despite family and friends protesting, she kept performing. By the 1990s, Ella Fitzgerald had recorded over 200 albums. In 1991, her final concert was held in New York's renowned Carnegie Hall, the 26th time she'd performed there. Complications with diabetes forced Fitzgerald to have both of her legs amputated below the knees in 1993. And she never fully recovered. In 1996, Ella Fitzgerald died in her home in Beverly Hills.
3: We're just proud to say that she's a Virginian. And she was proud. She would tell people she was from Virginia. She was proud of that. And we're proud of her, too.
1: The first lady of song and jazz icon Ella Fitzgerald was born in Virginia on April 25th, 1917. During the short time she was here, her story and her legend were just waiting in the wings. Her legacy stretching far beyond her lifetime. a name forever tied to the Confederacy. Robert E. Lee is right up there with Jefferson Davis when it comes to recognizable figures from the Confederate States of America. But what many don't know is right after Virginia seceded from the Union, Lee was offered the job to take command of the Union Army.
2: He was considered the greatest military leader in the country. He was considered the, the best candidate for that, for that job.
1: But on April 20th, 1861, Robert E. Lee resigned from the U.S. Army, destroying his decorated career after decades of service.
2: He had spent 30 years of his life in the Army. He had gone to West Point came out a second lieutenant, and then he labored where the Department of Engineers sent him. So he was literally standing waist-deep in mud in the Savannah River in Georgia, building a fort there. He was doing the same thing in St. Louis, diverting the river back to St. Louis, and similar jobs in Brooklyn and in Virginia at Fort Monroe. He had been positioned all over the nation.
1: For this story, we caught up with William Rasmussen, the senior curator of museum collections at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. A Virginia native, he co-authored a book on Robert E. Lee and Ulysses S. Grant. And Rasmussen himself has direct family ties to the Civil War.
2: And One ancestor was the mayor of Petersburg who surrendered the city to Ulysses Grant. So I have those, those roots.
1: But this story focuses on Grant's counterpart, who went from one side of history to the other in a span of just days. Decisions that would forever change the future of this country. Rasmussen says Lee was against Virginia leaving the Union in the first place. Writing to his son in January of 1861, shortly after South Carolina decided to secede, listen to lee's words
2: i can anticipate no greater calamity for the country than a dissolution of the union it would be an accumulation of all the evils we complain of and i'm willing to sacrifice everything but honor for its preservation and then he concludes the letter by saying if the union is dissolved and the government disrupted i shall return to my native state and share the miseries of my people and save in her defense will draw my sword on none
1: For Lee, it always came back to home. At this point, he was hoping Virginia would find a way to save the Union. In another conversation recorded into history just a month later by a Captain George Cosby.
2: George Cosby writes, Lee further said that he had confidence that Virginia would not act on impulse. And there was no personal sacrifice he would not make to save his beloved country from such a dreadful calamity. But under no circumstance would he ever bear his sword against Virginia's sons. As he spoke, his emotion brought tears to his eyes. So that clearly states Lee could not have felt more strongly about this. So that's February. Two months later, April 12th, Fort Sumter is bombarded. And five days later, April 17th, 1861, Virginia secedes.
1: Soon after, Lee is invited to speak to a man named Francis Preston Blair. Blair was sent by President Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln wanted Lee to take the next step forward in his military career and lead the Union forces. But Lee declined, saying that although he opposed secession and war, he could not invade southern states. We know what Lee said that day because Francis Preston Blair wrote it all down after their meeting.
2: Lee said he was devoted to the Union. He said that he would do everything in his power to save it, and that if he owned all the Negroes in the South, he would be willing to give them up and make the sacrifice of the value of every one of them to save the Union. And that's a fascinating statement that, that, that doesn't get noticed enough because it tells us a number of things. It tells us how strongly Lee felt about the Union, how actually disinterested he was in slavery. And from that point up until today, there have been a number of people who have always made the argument that the war wasn't about slavery. The Civil War wasn't about slavery, it was about states' rights. But here is Lee himself bringing up the subject. I mean, he wasn't even asked about slavery. And he brings up the subject and said he would give up the value because it's all about money and that the slaves were money he would be pleased to do that if it would save the union and it was much more important to save the union than to perpetuate slavery
1: the drama here is just incredible because another reason lee decided not to take this job his children if he had to invade the south virginia in particular he would be fighting against his own sons.
2: I cannot raise my hand against my children.
1: Three days after Virginia secedes, Lee resigns from the U.S. Army. And just three days after that, Robert E. Lee is offered command of the rebel forces in Virginia. In his speech in front of the Virginia Convention that day, he says...
2: So I accept the position to sign me by your partiality. I devote myself to the service of my native state. In whose behalf alone will I ever again draw my sword?
1: A few days later, Lee tells the Confederate Vice President.
2: I don't believe I had any control over it. When the time came, I could have not done otherwise. He he was trapped. April 20th,
1: 1861. Robert E. Lee resigns after more than 30 years of service to the US Army. Lee would say that he believed he didn't have a choice. He said that as a citizen of Virginia, he had to follow what Virginia decided. That decision stained in the blood of more than 600,000 American soldiers, wearing both blue and gray. Never more clearly does our next turn in history take us to the darkest corners of our minds, a place where tales of the macabre still linger. It was once upon a midnight dreary, on April 26, 1922 to be exact, that Virginia built its first monument to a literary legend, a museum to famed poet, Edgar Allan Poe weaving visitors through an enchanted garden, designed to walk you through the heart of one of Poe's masterpieces.
4: To one in paradise, thou wast it all to me love, for which my soul did pine, a green isle in the sea love, a fountain and a shrine, all wreathed with fairy fruits and flowers, and all the flowers were mine.
1: That's Chris Simpner, the curator of the Edgar Allan Poe Museum in Richmond. He was hired 20 years ago.
4: I have a fine arts background. So my interest in Poe originally was just growing up, reading his works. And we were first exposed to him back in fifth grade. Our school librarian read us the comedies. So I thought Poe was a funny writer.
1: He would soon discover Poe's famed horror stories. The Telltale Heart, The Black Cat, The Pit and the Pendulum, The Raven, to name a few.
4: What is it about some of Poe's stories that linger with you 10 or 20 years after you've read them and they resonate?
1: We're going to try to answer that question. In the early 1900s, Richmond had strong feelings about building a monument to Poe. His famed shrine has a journey that very much mirrors his short life and writings. To understand, we need to go down the how we got here rabbit hole of Poe's past.
4: When he was two years old his mother died here in Richmond. She was a traveling actress and she happened to be here in town. His father had already abandoned the family so Edgar and his brother and sister all split up and sent to the different families.
1: It was the Allen family that answered an ad in the local paper.
4: They weren't related to the Poe's at all. They're the ones who gave them the middle name of Poe but they read and advertised in the paper said that they need the humane hearts of Richmond to step forward and care for this woman in her dying days. She's suffering from the consumption so they took in little Edgar.
1: Poe wrote his first poems here and essentially lived in Richmond until he was 17 and ventured off to the University of Virginia.
4: Then he came back again after one year. He didn't last long at UVA.
1: That's because of a woman. You see, he left the love of his life back in Richmond. More so, he was
4: forced to. When he was a teenager, he fell in love with a lady called Elmira Royster. She was one of his neighbors. But her father did not approve of Edgar. So there's no way you're marrying my daughter. So they used to meet in secret, a little walled garden up on Franklin Street, which is now where the Row Inn stands today. And they made a pact. They get married as soon as he graduated college and he could take care of himself, wouldn't have to listen to anybody. So he went off to the University of Virginia and while he's away. Her father intercepted Poe's letters. As soon as he got to the house, her father destroyed them. She thought old Edgar had forgotten about her, so she wrote him an angry letter, gave it to her father to mail, and her father just destroyed that too.
1: Savage. That's what the kids say, right? By the time Poe returned home, Elmira was engaged to someone else.
4: That's when he ran away from home, decided I'm going to make my reputation as a great poet.
1: He tried school at West Point, but was court-martialed and kicked out after just eight months. So he found his way into a job at the Southern Literary Messenger in Richmond.
4: After college didn't work out, the military didn't work out, he started sending his short stories to various magazines and the editor of The Messenger was really interested. At this time, The Messenger was only a year old and the idea was that all the great writers live up north, Washington Irving, James Fenimore Cooper, They're in the big cities like New York and Boston. We need some good Southern literature. So they started the Southern Literary Messenger and nobody was buying it.
1: That soon changed after Poe arrived.
4: He was just asked to write some nice stories that would educate and entertain the public without offending them. So he sent them Berenice, which is a story about a man who is obsessed with his wife's teeth. He was so fascinated by her precious pearly white teeth, he could think of nothing else. But naturally she wasted away, she got sick and she's buried in the family cemetery. So he dug her up and he yanked out all her teeth.
1: As you can imagine, the angry letters and complaints and criticisms came pouring into the messenger. Other newspapers started writing editorials about how Poe's stories injured the public morals.
4: This is worse than Joker and violent video games combined. This is going to corrupt the youth. And Paul almost got fired after his first story, but he told his boss, trust me, this is what's going to sell. The more complaints you get, the more controversy, the more they're going to buy it.
1: And he was right. Within a year, the messenger had increased circulation seven times. And Poe established himself with a national reputation.
4: He wrote short stories there. He wrote book reviews. His first book review appeared the following month. He's reviewing a book called Confessions of a Poet. And it begins, the most remarkable aspect of this production is the bad paper on which it is printed. And the typographical ingenuity with which matter barely sufficient to fill one volume has been spread over the pages of two.
1: He ends this review by advising the author to shoot himself. Little much there,
4: right? Little much? Poe thought he was hilarious, and he was picking fights with all the leading writers like Longfellow and Emerson. He wanted to take down the northern literary establishment, and he said, they're just a bunch of pompous windbags, they're just a bunch of plagiarists, they're just all imitating the British. Longfellow is a quack-fobble legion of literary quackery who has no original ideas, but did a fairly good job of stealing Tennyson's and Poe's ideas.
1: His love stories were no less sordid, Poe got married in Richmond to his cousin, Virginia. I'd say ew, but that doesn't do it justice. It only gets worse.
4: He was 27, she was 13. So it looks like her mother sort of arranged things because her mother had been widowed and needed a place to live. Poe generally loved his cousin, but he still thought of her like a little kid's sister or a cousin.
1: Virginia died at age 24 of tuberculosis. Back to his time at The Messenger, two years after starting, Poe was
4: off. And then he moved from here to New York, then to Philadelphia, then back to New York again. And in the last years of his life, after his wife died, he did a lot of traveling to Lowell, Massachusetts, and to Boston, and to Providence. He was giving readings of his works. He found the real money was by traveling from city to city, giving performances. And also, he's looking for a new wife.
1: Always looking for love. Can't blame him, right? There were many women and many poems written for them. But in 1848, Poe was 39 and he returned to Richmond, once again, for love. Elmira was widowed and that savage father of hers was no longer in the picture.
4: Her house is standing upon Churchill now. It's her private residence. But imagine one day in 1848, he just showed up there. And of course he hadn't dropped off a calling card. There's etiquette to these things, you don't just show up. So her servant wouldn't let him in the house. And Elmira heard somebody arguing with her servant and came down the steps and saw him there. And he looked up and said, Elmira, is that you? And she said, go away, I gotta go to church.
1: Nothing gets in the way of church in the 1800s. And she's still mourning. Queen Victoria in England, she mourned for 40 years. But Poe was persistent
4: He spent the summer here, came down here in July and started courting her and they became engaged. He even joined a group called the Sons of Temperance and pledged to always be temperate and to stay away from alcohol. And she even agreed to take in Poe's mother-in-law.
1: Poe's mother-in-law from his first marriage to Virginia was still alive in New York. So he planned a trip to go get her. The last night he ever spent in Richmond, he visited Elmira.
4: She said he was very sick, had a fever, and she advised him not to leave the next day. From there, he went to a doctor's house over about 17th and Broad Street, across the street from where there's an Exxon station now. The doctor seemed to think Poe was sick and shouldn't leave, but Poe left and got a late dinner over at Sadler's Restaurant, which is across from Main Street Station. There's a parking lot there now. And he left there, head down to Rockets Landing, catch the 4 a.m. steamship.
1: It was to take him to Baltimore, but Poe goes missing.
4: And then he disappeared for five days. We know it would have taken about two days to get from here to Baltimore. You would have stopped in Norfolk first, probably, and then taken the rest of the way up from there.
1: He was found at a polling place on a voting day, sitting in a chair, semi-conscious, dressed in somebody else's clothes, with no memory of what happened to him.
4: And people thought, oh, he's been cooped. And cooping was a practice of Political fraud when political gangs would find somebody who was from out of town that nobody recognized, they beat him up, drug him, or get him really drunk, and use him as a repeat voter. They just get a bunch of people cooped up together, drag them all to the polls. They all sign the X line, drag him back, give him another drink, switch their clothes, have him vote again. And you can have him vote over and over again. There's no photo IDs.
1: That's still just speculation. No one knows for sure what happened to Edgar. But he spent his last four days on this earth. In a Baltimore hospital.
4: So they gave him the best medical care available at the time. They offered him some whiskey. But he turned down the whiskey, so they were fresh out of ideas after that. At least they didn't blood him. This was still the days when they said, you know what your problem is? Too much blood. Let's let's crack open a vein there.
1: He was delirious and in and out of consciousness, talking to shadows
4: on the wall. But on his deathbed, he kept saying, I have to get back to Richmond. I have a wife in Richmond. I have to get back to Richmond. I think he was talking about Elmira. He knew he had to get back to Elmira.
1: She didn't even know he was dead until she read about it in the newspapers.
4: His last words were, Lord, help my poor soul. And he just died at the age of 40.
1: Many cities claim Poe. Baltimore has his body. Boston claims him because he was born there. Philly and New York stake a claim because he lived there for a time.
4: But the one city that Poe claimed was Richmond. And there's a letter in which he calls himself a Virginian. He calls Richmond his home because that's where he spent most of his life. So we've got that claim on him. We've got Poe's claim that this is his hometown.
1: But when Poe died, people were distancing themselves from him.
4: Elmira refused requests for interviews for decades. She didn't want to be associated with somebody with his reputation.
1: Poe's obituary didn't help matters. Chris Sempner read an excerpt for us.
4: Edgar Poe is dead. This news will startle many but few will be grieved about it. He had few or no friends and goes on to describe Poe as a lousy, filthy, drunk, and a horrible guy with no morals. And this was written by Poe's worst enemy, Rufus W. Griswold. He despised Poe. They were personal rivals and Poe used to ridicule him in his book reviews and when he'd go on stage he'd make fun of Griswold and one of his stories he makes fun of Griswold he says a character gets more stupid by reading one of Griswold's books so Griswold got him back.
1: But Griswold didn't have the guts to sign that obituary he used a pseudonym Ludwig. People soon discovered it was Griswold and he doubled down writing Poe's biography.
4: He said that Poe's a madman Nobody could have written stories like the Telltale Heart if they weren't insane themselves. So Poe is a horrible, evil, despicable person, a drug addict, an alcoholic, and you should never ever read his works again.
1: And just as Poe predicted, as soon as that book came out, Poe's complete works sold out in multiple editions within the first six months.
4: His reputation has been growing, and overseas, especially in France, They kind of like this idea that Poe is a madman. He was the poet Maudit. He was the mad poet who lives on the fringes of society. He's doomed never to fit in with these mere mortals. There is that pop culture figure that Griswold helped create. That's the Poe that appears on South Park or The Simpsons. That's the caricature of Poe. That's the Poe of the bobbleheads.
1: In the years right after his death, his following in Richmond wanted to honor him.
4: Richmond had long been home to monuments for military and political leaders, for figures from the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. But this Poe Museum was started by people who thought that, hey, art and literature and beauty, they deserve to be memorialized.
1: But in the early 1900s, the city of Richmond didn't want a Poe statue. The paper said his character was unworthy of being remembered because he was not a good Virginia gentleman. Like Poe, the group persisted, and the perfect location was 15th and Main, the home of the Southern Literary Messenger. So what did the city do?
4: So in 1916, they demolished the building so they could widen 15th Street. Then they changed their mind to widen 14th Street instead.
1: Oh, so very Richmond. Remember the trolleys from season two? But the group saved the bricks and granite and lumber. Bricks were taken from Poe's home in Greenwich Village. There were slabs of granite from his boyhood home on Bank Street in Richmond. They even took flowers planted at his mother's grave. And through all the places Poe touched in life, a group of literary enthusiasts pieced together in a very Poe-like way, a museum and gardens that sit today on Main Street.
4: He was trying to make stories that had an impact on the reader that resonated with them. That was his whole criteria for his success was how it made you feel.
1: A shrine to a literary giant visited by more than 30,000 people each year. It opened, April 26, 1922 in Richmond. Over the years attracting the likes of Salvador Dali, Gertrude Stein, Henry Miller, H.P. Lovecraft. They have all walked its ghostly garden, drawn to the darkness of a mind. To quote the Raven one more time. This podcast is recorded by WWBT, NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. Special thanks to digital director Kate Albright, who wouldn't know a deadline if I mentioned it over and over, and mentioned it again, and again. (laughs) And to executive producer Colton Weekly, who loves this podcast so much, he was invited to another country to share his joy. Sadly, his trip got put on hold. Sorry, Colton. And thanks to our guests this week, Andrew Talkoff and William Rasmussen with the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, B.J. Brown with the Richmond Jazz Society,
4: Is that a, ca- a cat or a baby? Or a cat. Someone's crying. <laughs>
1: it's very fitting that a cat's whining at
4: the door. <laughs> the cats are the bosses around here. They tell us what to do.
1: And Chris Simpner with the Edgar Allan Poe Museum in Richmond, Edgar the cat wanted to be part of our story. Next week on Episode Two, a packed courtroom floor gives way at Virginia State Capitol building.
3: You know, nobody understood what was about to happen. Nobody saw this disaster, this calamity, happening until it did.
1: Plus, she was 17, she was unmarried, and she was pregnant. And that was grounds enough to get her declared feeble-minded. A day in history the US Supreme Court might like to forget. A precedent set in Virginia that would later be used by the Nazis. And finally, the epic battle between the Union and the Confederates that left a stone wall shattered.
3: The men just stopped what they were doing and stood in their tracks watching all of nature go insane it didn't make sense to them
1: that's next week on episode two if you like this podcast please support local journalism you can find stories like this from a little more recent history at nbc12.com and if you don't mind and you use apple podcasts rate and review us it really does help others find us If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere at NBC12.com. We'll be back in your life next Monday.